here, there, and everywhere. SAFM 105.1 FM in Johannesburg. Night Talk, giving you depth and texture to the conversations that matter. You're listening to Night Talk. My name is Oliver Dixon. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Really do appreciate it. It is the Wednesday edition. That means at 10.30 we talk politics. And particularly tonight uh, we profile Build One South Africa, one of the newest additions to the electoral competition of South Africa. Uh, and they will be on the ballot in 2024. What do they stand for? What are they offering? This is an opportunity for us to establish those answers. And perhaps you may find it attractive enough to vote for them. Uh, what will it take for them to get your vote? This conversation is entirely about helping you make that decision next year. So give us a call throughout this conversation, 86 if you have a question for Musa Mamani. I'm also taking your WhatsApp voice notes on 614 Tweet me at Oliver underscore speaking. Musi, good evening. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really do appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to jump straight into it. Candidates have been announced. It means you guys are effectively in business. You're an organization that has taken some shape and you have some presence across the country and you're doing a lot of that canvassing work already. Uh, Help us understand, what is Build One South Africa offering and how is it unique to what is already out there in the electoral offering? Uh, good evening and good evening to fellow South Africans. Um, I mean, you know, we've come into a political space that we recognized up front that politics was become very distant from the people of this country. And we, especially national and provincial politics, you have these elections where people are chosen, but they don't represent the people, they represent the party. So exactly where you've started, the distinction is that we offer power back to the people. So we went out and we said, let the people who want to be, who represent their communities, let them come into our program and they can represent their communities. That's the first distinctive. There's no party that's doing that in the country. And furthermore, there's no party that's brave enough to stand before people and say, here are the people, interrogate them. Secondly, we're the one party in South Africa that's standing up going, can we actually apply with those skills, with that competence to build a government that will deliver on a number of key objectives? Uh, the first, obviously, is the idea of what we do in the economy, how we deal with education, how do we ensure citizens are safe and that the state is capable. And we argue, furthermore, that people are united on the basis of values. And so we're a values-based organization. We're clear in our heads that people care about the things that they care about value. They don't care. They don't wake up thinking, are they Marxists? Are they socialists? Are they, they wake up realizing that actually I care about, I care about justice. I yeah. care about the fact that I deal with fellow human beings. So, so that's what we are as a political party. And we wanted to be that movement for the people and by the people. And I'm grateful that South Africans are starting on board to come and see us and engage us on that issue. Yeah, people matter, so do ideas. We'll get back to the people question a little bit later on. But from an ideas perspective, uh, what is Build One South Africa offering? Yeah, we've tabled a 10-point plan that focuses on, one, how do we keep the lights on? 
because we think that if we don't fix ESCOM, we can't grow the economy. So we've introduced a model of build, own, operate models that introduces a way of augmenting energy so that actually the lights stay on so that people can, we can, we can, we can assist in public-private partnerships to ensure that there's a sense upon which safe nuclear, other technologies uh, can be introduced so that we can augment the energy space. We, we've also said in the education space, can we give vouchers to kids so that they have a choice as to where they can go to school? You know, one of the things we, we, we forget in this country is the fact that the apartheid vision of uh, particularly the black child ending up with an education that doesn't prepare them for competition with any other one is still alive and well. So we've got to fight to improve kids passing only by 30%. We want to make it 50, but we want to give them vouchers so they can choose which school they can go to so that we can fund that. We want to introduce a national civilian service for young people so that they have a a year's program where at the end of that year, they can be able to get an internship program plus a training program. And for this regard, I've engaged organizations like Harambe and many others to say, how do we make it practicable? We deal with issues like healthcare to make sure that the state is an underwriter, not the primary provider of, of health, so that you can ensure that there is universal health coverage, but citizens can benefit from both public and private institutions. So so that if you've got a patient at a primary health care, you can if you've got a, an illness in that regard, you are able to go to a public and a private institution and the state acts as an as an underwriter to that. We also look at safety by introducing a volunteer program, but also bringing SAPs down to local communities so that SAP stops becoming this national competence that none of us have an option of, but actually that we fight against murder in a country where 70 people are murdered every day. We want to bring high volunteers, merge it with private sector. There are more private security guards than there are police in the country. So use that force, aggregate it with Metro Police to make sure we're aggressive on crime. And I could carry on. We've got, those are some of the five ideas, but we really unpack how do we include justice? How do we make sure people are safe and who can work for government? Yeah, I'm gonna take uh, I'm gonna take three out of those and and, and let's see if we can uh, get some depth out of that uh, on build on operate on ESCOM. What does that mean in practice? Is it different from what is currently on offer? That is to say, an IPP program uh, where independent uh, project uh, operators can build their own electricity infrastructure, wind, solar, or or, uh, or other forms of technologies, uh, and sell that to ESCOM at the agreed rate, which NERSA uh, uh, regulates over. They own that technology, and as the grid expands, and we know that there's a grid expansion program uh, underway uh, within the Department of Electricity, uh, that if they build part of the grid, they get to operate that part of the grid, albeit regulated at a national level. Uh, that's what I understand the energy plan to currently be in government. How is build on operate under your model different? So effectively, we don't see ESCOM as the sole energy provider in the country. You're able to create uh, an ability in the same way as a private household. If you decide today that you want to introduce solar on your roof panel, you can make a decision to do that. We want to allow for mega industries to be able to have direct build, own, operate type systems so that uh, they don't have to resell that back to ESCOM, but actually they've got direct connectivity so that you reduce demand and effectively over a long period of time stabilize 
the energy crisis. That's a short-term intervention. Obviously, the long-term one pertains to diversifying our energy supply by being much more environmental sustainable, introducing further a, a grid that can cover the SADC region, which we've already got infrastructure for, so that you can benefit from uh, imports of gas and other types of technology in other countries like Malawi and Mozambique. Uh, and that over a long run, actually, not only do you reduce demand, you reduce dependence on coal because ESCOM is still at this point in time 70% coal dependent. You can also ensure that actually our energy mix is much more sustainable and diverse going into the country. So in our model, we see a direct operation dealing with citizens on that score. And we've already started to uh, look at how the business models of this issue work and how it can be effective in dealing even with some of the community crisis that, that, uh, that, uh, that we see, especially given that many people are still suffering with with load shedding, yet wealthy citizens are able to augment for themselves and get themselves out of this crisis. Businesses and communities can already do that up to 100 megawatts. Uh, we want to increase that, particularly in the mining sector, in big demands, in, in, in smelters, we can be able to introduce that. At this point in time, though, ESCOM is still largely the sole distributor of energy. Yeah. Let's move on to education quickly. What What's this voucher system? Exactly what does that mean? So a, the education department spends just under 13,000 rand per learner per year. Yeah. Uh, and so what we're saying and that's is in that basic, rather than that's that... That's in basic be, education. Be, yeah, the basic education. Yeah, and that's an important distinction right there. So what we're saying is... If for a, a what is often described in other parts as charter schools, etc., you yeah. create schools in communities where effectively you give the parents a 13,000 rand voucher, you allow the institution to be able to say, let's assume hypothetically fees end up at 20,000. I've already proposed uh, that part of our big idea is to introduce a jobs and justice fund where you can take funding from particularly companies that have benefited under apartheid to, com to, to contribute to that fund. You can give an additional subsidy, particularly to poor learners, and the parents can meet the outstanding balance so that you create higher and better education, but that parents always have a choice. See, once somebody is empowered with a voucher, they know quite clearly if the school doesn't work, I can choose to go to another school of my own uh, doing that might, in fact, in whatever that community is, whatever that place is, actually have better education outcomes. And I can use my voucher as part payment to that or as complete payment pending on the fees to that school. It seems like over there you're fixing a different problem from a quality problem. You're fixing a choice problem and not a quality problem. The problem seems to be schools are not improving. So maybe the focus should be on improving schools that wherever learners currently are, they are receiving a quality education that they don't have to shop around to find a quality education in our public sector. It doesn't seem useful at least to make the public sector compete against each other because you're just going to concentrate a bunch of learners into one school and not from another school. Again, creating a resource disparity for communities. No, not really. I mean, we've built into that assumption a number of things, right? And you can see it almost immediately now. Schools that perform well 
have an additional they work out the best mechanisms to subsidize their income so as to improve the quality of education to improve classroom sizes yeah and because they know they're dependent on revenue they are forced to work harder and compete harder at this point in time what we've done in the education system is that we've prioritized access in in that education sector so so more kids are able to go to school. That's an, that's what the government could say it's achieved. But frankly, the the quality of those schools anyways, without doing anything, is actually split along 80-20, where 80% of the schools are dysfunctional in the main, in some way or another, unable to produce results that actually prepare those kids for competition. Yeah. So, so what I'm saying is, what you then end up doing is you incentivize competition. It'll mean that for the leaders of those schools or the headmasters of those schools, you won't be able to tolerate a teacher who who, who cannot themselves compete against that, uh, write the exam that they're trying to teach for. And so it's our but how way does, how of does breaking that down the shackles of apartheid, but it's further another way of saying, given all the other interventions that you've got to do, strengthen the schools and make sure they are more competitive and you will force them into that space how does that At change point, the incentive they have no reason to do that how does that change the incentive structure uh, because at the moment, teachers and principals and school management will get their salaries regardless of the school's performance. Uh, it's not as though teachers' compensation and salaries are performance-based. No, well, they'll start to lose learners because once learners start to go, actually, in this school, uh, I'm obligated to go to it, yet no one is doing anything of any sense. But now I'm empowered with this voucher. I can now rethink. I can go, actually... I don't need to go to the school. I'm going to go shop around with my voucher and make sure I go to one that is performing. And it may be uh, a little bit further away yeah, in our I mean, community in a partnership. Suddenly, that school has to compete. It's clear that it's losing learners. But that only works, Musi, if there's an unlimited amount of desks. If the best performing school in the region, or let's say the top five performing schools in one district, only have collectively 7,000 desks and you have 17,000 learners, you'll be only be able to get 7,000 learners into those schools on those desks. The 10,000 are still going to go back to the uh, average and poor performing schools. It's not as though they're actually going to lose learners. It's just going to be a competition of who gets into the good schools first. Yeah, and, and ultimately, when you then have a program that forces schools to say am i in the lower range of schools from a competitive point of view am i in a better range of schools now suddenly the state can be better even assessed in its own bang for buck if i use that term to say is the school that is losing learners actually giving us return on investment so let's work hard at making sure that we can begin to even improve that school because what is happening right now Without my proposal of a voucher system, what is happening right now is that as private institutions, all you just need to do is stand outside any township on a Monday morning or any day of the week and notice how many kids are leaving those townships to go to what is typically ex-Model C schools or uh, private schools of any kind. And they end up there and invariably what happens is your fees in schools are left out so, so that eventually you starve capital to even those schools that you say are their number of set desks that are available in that community. So yes, uh, 
there are multiple interventions in fixing education. I'm only highlighting a voucher one, but it doesn't change the fact that we've got to improve the quality of teaching. It doesn't change the sure. fact that we've got to orientate curriculum improvement. It doesn't change the fact that we've got to eradicate pit latrines. That doesn't absolve the state from that. I'm adding another layer as a new incentive that then forces productivity out of the school. Do you agree with Musa Mane? Is that an idea at all attractive to you in part fixing our education system, basic education system? Perhaps you're an experienced uh, uh, you know, person in the education system, basic education. Perhaps you're a teacher listening right now, a former principal or an education specialist. I'd love to hear your views on that. Give me a call. 086-000-2032. Taking your voice notes on 614 Musi, two things on 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 sa- crime, safety, and security. You want you do want to decentralize the police service away from being a national uh, function uh, and give communities through I don't know is would it be districts, provinces, or municipalities access to shaping uh, policing operations and policy, and you want to incorporate private security into assisting that. Uh, slowly describe the model. So. So imagine, in fact, in, in we were going that way anyways as a country. It's just that in 1994, when we are drafting the constitution, you wouldn't want to give provinces uh, their own private police forces So because of the fear of instability. And so we chose to go for a national SEPs model. It's, it's inefficient in a number of ways because when it's said and done, intelligence sits at national level. And so you fail to capacitate police stations at a lower level. And so you never know who are the criminals, the the police. The, the fact of the matter is that crime in this country is not committed by new people every day. It's the same criminals committing the same crime more often than not and getting yeah. away with it. So, so what we've got to do is bring it down to a provincial level. So each province must be able to do that. And when there are big metros, you take those metro police and instead of just making them uh, people who just look after uh, traffic fines and traffic violation, not only do they do that, but you capacitate their ability to do other criminal, particularly around petty and contact crime, you merge them with some of the private security industries by using fairly strong digital systems so that your response time and your eyes are, are much more open. You allow, a, as part of my national civilian program, more younger people to be able to keep an eye on community crime interventions. And then when the SEPs come in, they you prioritize, they focus on murder. Because in this country, if we, you know, when we look at uh, our historical numbers, think about 2010, our murder numbers were the lowest back then for two reasons. We invested more into policing and we prioritized murder as our first issue. And therefore, we began to drive that uh, contact crime, that type of crime less and less. So what we've got to do is make sure we bring it down to the ground because a police station now suddenly will have better equipment, better better, better resource, more people, yeah. more eyes on the ground, and furthermore, an intelligence so that they know which is the criminal, which means that in the criminal justice system, you can create better evidence collection because our prosecution rate not only is murder high, but our prosecution rate, as far as murder is concerned, is below 50, uh, below 20%. So in essence, your probability of being, arresting, being arrested for murder is one out of five. That's unacceptable. It means people can literally get away with murder. And globally, this is part of what happens when you look at countries like Germany, you look at countries like the... Like 
like the US, it's why you have a New York police department. It's so that you know what the uniqueness of what, what crimes take place in a particular jurisdiction and therefore you capacitate yourself better for it. Yep. Night Talk, Monday to Thursdays, 10 to midnight. It is nine minutes to the top of the hour. I'm in conversation with Build One South Africa leader, Musi Maimane. Musi, just a final question from you before we take some calls and some voice notes and have you react to that is uh, you, you announced 24 candidates and, and the guiding principle there today or when you announced it was uh, that you want talent and depth to lead, not personality and profile. Um, hmm. But yet in that is one personality and profile that stands out above the rest. That's controversial for that. And that's uh, the inclusion of Stevens Mukhalapa, the former mayor of the city of Tuani, who was ousted or at least resigned as mayor following the disgrace of a sex scandal where he was involved in an intimate sexual relationship with a subordinate in his office. That must have been something you thought about. How did you calculate that? Yeah, look, uh, naturally, when incidents like that have taken place, there are a couple of things. One, right, uh, we had to assess Stephen's own competence. We had to look at, furthermore, whether in given what he does, has he got the qualifications, has he dealt, because political principles of different walks have had uh, they may have had their own challenges. Was it was the act criminal in and of itself? Would it disqualify him from parliament? And ultimately, is he still standing up, going out to communities, being able to amass enough signatures from people who say they endorse his candidacy, etc.? And 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 then the last thing is, you know, when I worked uh, at the time when Stevens this um, was there, I can remember that the resignation came because we needed for him to return back to parliament and do a different role. So, so when I look at um, the nature of our own assessment, of course, I uh, we have to we we have to when we score candidates, give them all a fair process. We can't also include into that any whatever if you've got your own personal indiscretions that you've taken place in life if they're not criminal by nature and we await the we we, we can't we, we we i can't interrogate that if i if i, if I could say it like that yeah you're not at all worried about young women that may be working with stevens in the organization naturally um and i think that would be a question for stevens to be able to manage it's something that I don't up, I don't uphold myself, and therefore there were a lot of different issues that took place in Tswane, and I can't suggest I was pres- uh, in other instances, whatever the evidence was, that's something that we're going to have to monitor and keep a strong eye on. Okay, taking your call zero eight six triple zero two zero three two. Let's go to the lines. Barbara out in Port Shepston. Barbara, good evening. Good evening. Thank you for taking my call. Go ahead, Barbara. What's on your mind? Yes, I wanted to ask uh, Musi what his thoughts are about teacher education because the schools won't function without good teachers. And we can't just change one thing unless you're satisfied with teacher education at the moment. Thank you so much for that question, Barbara. I'm going to let you go and you can have a listen to that on the radio. Uh, Barbara calling us there from Port Shepson. Let's speak to Tosca out in Durban. Tosca, good evening. Good evening, Oliver. Go ahead, Tosca. What's your comment or question? Uh, it's my question to Musi. Uh, it's about 
the organization they are bringing in. You see, we rely on parliament to pass laws and things like that. Now, the abortion bill, yes, it is a progressive, uh, the the law on abortion is a progressive law. It helps out uh, this way and that way. But for us Africans, in all our respective languages, the coming of a soul through pregnancy is a um, divine event. And whether a child is lost through abortion or uh, through a miscarriage, that child has to be uh, welcomed into the world and even given a name. Now, in them offering these services of abortion, do they also uh, take care of warning our children about the side effect, if I may call it that? Uh, Or could their uh, organization make sure that our children do this, but also know what consequences uh, follow? Okay. Thank you so much for that. Uh, appreciate your question, Tosca. Musi, do you want to go you. for that? Yeah, let me start with the first on teacher training. Uh, I mean, naturally, I think one of the the benefits of being young is that you are able to interact with technology on a much more significant level. I think technology gives us a great opportunity to democratize access. And so to Barbara, I think in Richards Bay, what I would say is that part of the program is that let's build... Let's make sure there's free Wi-Fi, particularly in schools and communities, so that uh, ultimately teachers are able to log on to portals where they can get personal development, be able to work with some of the best teachers. And if, for example, a lesson in mathematics can be best taught by a teacher within a region who is more competent to broadcast that message to four or five schools, well, technology must allow us to do that. It'll make it easier. On the second, you know, Termination of pregnancy itself. <clears throat> I'm a Christian. I believe in in I'm I'm in many ways one who says life begins at conception. Right. That's where that's where I come from. And yet, I also believe quite strongly in in as the Bible says, I place before you life and death. Choose life. And so for me, where I sit on these issues, I take what the caller is saying and I take the fact that we've got our traditions and customs and education becomes absolutely paramount. It's why democracy must go back to the people. The, the, the constitutional court ruling on this particular issue makes it makes it gives right it gives rights but it gives the choice to people and what i'm saying is that as we go back to a constituency-based model where members of parliament are accountable to their communities their communities can give mandate to that particular member of parliament as to how they go so that when you create laws and you draft what parliament is meant to do those laws are originated by the will of the people and the people give give expression to 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 what the bill must look like and so that for me is again one of the most important things about our model because if we miss the opportunity for citizens to have a voice then we really undermine the very essence of what democracy is yeah Look, Musa, you do have to go at 11, but we have a ton of other questions from callers and listeners for you. But I'll perhaps leave you with this last one. What is your coalition guiding principle? 
Um, when I asked you earlier when we opened this up, how are you different from other parties? Uh, other prospects immediately come to mind. How are you different, say, from uh, Raizam Zanzi as a, as a prospect? How are you different from Action SA as a prospect? But what are your guiding principles in terms of should you be should you have to put together your votes with them uh, to coalesce? Uh, what would your thinking be in that moment? Yeah, for me, I'm very focused on vision. Uh, let's agree on the 10-point plan. If we can agree on that, we can then sit together collectively and say, oh, okay, we could work with these people because then it's not about positions, right? That's the first thing. And I haven't seen any other party's plan, as it were. So so it's very difficult to sit down and say, I'll partner with that one or that one. I don't know what their plan is. Secondly, let's agree on the ki- the caliber of leadership that we are going to attract. I'm not going to coalesce with criminals. You you can't, you can't ask me to do that. I won't do that for the people of this country. Who are the, the criminals in reference? Well, people who have already been engaged in Zondo Commission, for example, okay. I mean, we know that. Like, I mean, let's not even debate the issue. Why should people who have been uh, implicated in that still be in government? Night Dog, walking you to the ballot box.